Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome along. The domestic season may be over, but of course we have the Champions League to come and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. And with the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, loads more to create your own personalised bets. And if you can't watch the games live, check out Bet365's Match Live feature where you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app is available from Google Play and the Apple App Store. It's for over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. And the Phil Hayes Show is brought to you by The Athletic in association with The Square Ball. Hello, I'm Dan Moylan. And the headline act is here, Phil Hay. Hello. And the hype man from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. Right now, we're offering listeners of this show the opportunity to try out The Athletic for free. You can enjoy all of Phil's great writing on United as the club gets ready for its return to the Premier League. You can also enjoy recent articles, including the one that we're going to be discussing in this show today, uh, such as how Bielsa has already made Leeds a must-watch attraction for football fans in Argentina. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up for a 30-day free trial. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. More on Bielsa in a bit then. We will talk about Marcelo and the impact uh, Leeds United has had over in Argentina in part two. First part one, let's have a catch up on where we are. The players are now back and we should caveat this by saying things obviously move very quickly at this time of year. So we're going to timestamp the recording of this show, which is Wednesday at 5pm. So anything might yet happen between recording and release. It could do, and it normally does. The players were given um, a couple of weeks off at the end of the season, which was always planned if they went up. If, if they hadn't, it would have been disrupted by the playoffs, um, and I think they would have had less time again. It does appear that a lot of the holidays or the, the trips that were planned by them um, to Spain and other places have been disrupted because of the, the quarantine rules that have come into place. But everybody's back, and, and everybody um, is ready to go this week, four weeks out, four and a bit weeks out. And this was always the point at which they also wanted to get going. And this is the point at which they'll they'll start to, to level up now towards um, being match fit for the start of the, of the season, the Premier League season. Um, as it stands, we're still waiting for White Smoke and um, the green light with Bielsa's contract. I think we said on the last podcast that we did that, that it is essentially agreed um, with Bielsa. They're, they're pretty much there with terms and, and the conditions that he's looking for. It, it just is, and I know people will be sick of hearing this, but it just is the usual process of with him of the slow nature of uh, the way this progresses and the slow nature of the way in which he picks through everything and, and checks everything and double checks everything and, and asks for it to be looked over by people back in Argentina, particularly his, his brother Rafael, who, who works as, as his lawyer um, and, and does all the, the paperwork for him. Um, so every time I speak to people, they say, look, this is in hand and, and it is going to get done. And, and Bielsa was planning and, and, and will take training this week and you can kind of draw the conclusion from that that he certainly thinks he will be staying and he certainly thinks he will be in charge um, for next season. But that's one of the things that is clearly outstanding and, and needs to be dealt with is just getting his name on the on the dotted line. It feels like it's all sorted, doesn't it, when you get Joe Gellhart, who's talking in terms of being coached by him, and Jack Harrison, as good as confirmed it, when he did his interview upon uh, re-signing on loan for the season. So, I mean, I'm, I don't feel particularly worried. There's always that little element of doubt, I guess, but I'm not particularly worried about it. 
There is with any deal, and, and probably slightly more so with Bielsa, because you, you're never quite sure with him, and, and you know what a stickler he, he is for detail. I, I think in different circumstances, the club by now might actually have announced the fact that it was essentially agreed, you know, that, that things were in place and, and it was pretty much good to go, barring a few um, formalities and, and a few legalities that, that need to be checked over. But I, I don't think you'd take the risk with somebody like him, because you never... 100% certain that something isn't going to go wrong at the last minute. Ne- nobody on either side expects it to go wrong. Nobody at any stage, you know, from a couple of weeks prior to the end of the season, from that point out to this stage now, nobody has ever suggested that he was going to leave, he was going to go, that, that he was unhappy with anything significant or that there were going to be any problems. But it goes without saying that, the you know, the, the contract does need signed and, and it does need finalised. And I I know the club were hopeful of getting it done before training resumed this week. I'm sure they'll want to get it done this week so that at least they can kind of knock on the head, put to one side and, and consider done. We'll come on to the transfers in just a moment or two. Let's talk about the uh, the sponsorship stuff that's that's coming, which as, at the time of recording is the most recent kind of news story that's, that's broken. We've now got ourselves a shirt sponsor, uh, SBO Top on the shirts, Clipper uh, doing the, the training gear. And uh, as a result of the, the leaks photo of Joe Gellhart, we pretty much know what the home shirt's going to look like. So so where are we now with all this? Do we, do we know how much these deals are worth to the club? Because you've spoken in recent weeks, Phil, of the Premier League shirt sponsorship deal being worth maybe up to 10 times what you might get in the EFL. Absolutely. SBO Top obviously replaced 32 Red, who've been there for, for a few seasons now. But the, the issue for 32 Red in their contract was that Leeds had the right to negotiate themselves out of it. Um, if they were promoted, they had the right to look for um, new sponsors and different sponsors, which which they had. And I think 32 Red equally had the right to table um, another bid for the um, the sponsorship rights. Uh, but it went without saying that once Leeds got into the Premier League, they were going to have a, a lot more interest and, and they were going to attract offers that were a, potentially at a higher value um, than, than 32 Red could offer them. Uh, my understanding with SBO Top individually, um, so their deal, is that it will be worth in the region of £7 million a year, which is you know not far off a, a tenfold increase and gives you the, a really stark indication of, of how much the finances do leap once you, you get out of the EFL and, and into the, the Premier League. And on top of that, they, they've obviously got the deal with Clipper for the training gear. They will announce a, a, a deal with a, a sleeve sponsor as well. And, and I think between the kit sponsorship agreements that are out there, they'll be looking at an income of about £10 million um, a season, £10 million a year, which, again, you know, huge amount of money and is taking them to a different level financially. Yeah, so that that's pretty much where they are at the moment. And we we spoke about the, the kit and the fact that the kit hadn't been released. And a lot of people asking when's the when is it going to appear? What's the date likely to be? I mean, I was going to say we'd, we're anticipating in the next couple of weeks, but it, it's pretty obvious that it's going to have to be in the next couple of weeks or next few weeks because the season is coming very rapidly, the, the start date of the weekend of, of September the 12th. But one of the reasons that they couldn't push the kit out, one of the reasons that they weren't able to publicise it or get it on sale more quickly than they have was because they were in the process of finalising deals with the likes of SBO Top, you know, to, to get that done and, and to make sure that that was all nailed down and, and all in place and, and that there weren't going to be any issues uh, with that. So once we get through the, the final process with this, you know, sleeve sponsor and, and other bits and pieces, I, I would think that both the club and Adidas will be pretty much ready to go. What's going on at the moment with the the way the club are communicating these things? Because the some of the deals, like I was kind of surprised to see Jack Harrison being announced the other day, and that's something we've known about for absolutely ages. And the sponsorship deal was sort of leaked on an Isle of Man radio station. The kit has been leaked via a photo on Instagram. Like It feels like the club are almost unsuccessfully holding things back at the moment. Just wondering if, if there's any reason why they're doing it this way. 
No, I, I, well, there is a reason in so much as what I was saying there about the sponsorship agreements. They, it's a little bit like player signings. Clubs never announce them until they're officially done and, and formally signed and, and everything else. And, and obviously you've had players away on holiday. With regards to the sponsorship, it has just been a case of tying up the loose ends with with SBO Top. The one area which I, I certainly have some sympathy for them is with the kit pitches that leak because it's happened before to other clubs in the past and, and you're almost at the mercy of your distribution centres and, and the other areas of, if it's Adidas, you know, Adidas, Adidas's company where these kits are produced, the, the risk that, that it does leak, someone gets a photo of it and, and somebody puts them out there. But I know what you mean. It, I think as a club, you, you want to go first with these things and, and you'd like to go first with them and it becomes more and more difficult to do that as social media develops because news kind of leaks leaks everywhere and and it's almost impossible to stop when it's like that I mean Joe Gelhart who's who's come in from Wigan on a four-year deal earlier this week I mean I was told two weeks ago that that he'd had a medical during his holiday abroad and he'd passed it and everything else and, and that terms were essentially in place and and we've kind of sat for the last 10 days or so just waiting for that one to go. I mean, it's been absolutely no secret that he was likely to sign and no secret the Leeds were interested. But that, to my mind, has, has been pretty much done and, and just waiting for the, the formalities and um, for a little while now. So sometimes clubs do take a while. Sometimes there are reasons why it, it gets delayed. For example, Gail Hart, somebody said to me that it should have happened on Thursday last week or it could have happened on Thursday last week. But Thursday was the Premier League AGM and Victor Orta was at the AGM and, and wanted to be there when Gail Hart was, was signing um, as, as director of football. So there are kind of a lot of facets to it and there are a lot of things that, that can delay them. And as I say, I, think, I almost get the feeling these days that while clubs try their best to keep news tight and, and to prevent it leaking, most of them are almost resigned to the fact that every single story at some stage is going to come out somewhere before it actually breaks officially on their official website. It is becoming nigh on impossible to stop that happening. As I understand it, obviously we've seen the home kit, which is the nice minimalist uh, white affair. Good that they went for white again. Away kit of the uh, the dark blue and green. And the third kit of maroon, Phil. Uh, I'm looking at you now and how much influence you've had on this as a Hearts fan. It's what's been talked about, although I must confess I don't know with the third strip. I, I don't know exactly what's coming. If it is maroon and white and heart and Midlothian colours, then I, I endorse that absolutely. And it seems to me to be the sensible colours for, for any football club to go with. It is a break from the norm, without a doubt. Uh, although Leeds have found in the last couple of years that the, the kind of off-the-wall or, or off-piece kit, so your charcoal and pink or, or the away kit in the previous season, Bielsa's first, have been hugely successful commercially. So I think that the temptation or the tendency to gamble a little with what you do, to gamble with colours or design, is definitely there because of the potential success of them. And ultimately, it's not red. And I was I was looking at a few of the tweets earlier in, in the week at, at you know, potential mock-ups or, or what people thought were leaked photos and, and what appeared to be kits with a rather strong red hue and I think as long as it's not red that is a, a very good starting point and as I say you, you cannot knock a maroon kit. How do you feel about a maroon kit potentially Michael? I mean we're grown-ups it shouldn't matter that much but so much of the club's identity is, is wrapped up in what we wear and how we look. My first car was arguably red but I used to claim it was maroon so I, I can't really complain about maroon kit because I, I basically bought a Yaris because it was it was cheaper in that colour than in anything else that I could find so I think if we can keep it away from, it just needs to be away from Man United red. I can see that there'll be an issue with that, but if if it's the right, if it's a Hearts kind of colour, I think we can just about live with that. And I do think there's a certain amount of they've looked at the Premier League teams and who are we going to wear this against? Well, you can think anybody who plays in blue or blue and white, you know, Leicester, Brighton, those kind of teams, it's going to get worn there. Man City as well. Whereas you can't obviously wear 
the blue away kit against against those teams. But it, it will all come out in the wash, for want of a better phrase. Anyway, the important stuff is who's going to be wearing these shirts. And we're seeing very much a, a two-pronged approach to the transfers, I think it feels like, from the outside, Phil, where there's a lot of strong background activity going on with the under-23s. And then there's this co- sort of core four or five players that they're looking at for the first team. So you'd expect you know a bit of crossover between them as well in the way that Bielsa uses his squad. But there's a definite line there for me. There is, and it'd be worth touching on some of the, the 23's activity here because there is there is plenty of it. Um, Gilhart is obviously in from, from Wigan, and while I don't think Bielsa will be resistant to using him as a first-team player, I, I think he will definitely be involved in the, the first-team 23 squad that, that train together. Um, he's, he's probably likely to play more in the 23's and, and to feature him more heavily in those squads than he is the first-team squad in, in this season coming up but they've done a, a bit of other business as well so they've got Charlie Allen in from from Limfield 16 year old striker who to look at him already looks like he's he's got a man's body for a for a boy's brain um he was was very very highly thought of in, in Northern Ireland and, and a lot of clubs in for him and I know that of the without you know being disrespectful to anybody else who's coming in I know that that was one of the deals that Leeds were, were desperate to get done for the academy they saw that as a as a real priority and I'm told that, that he's trained with the 18s and has already looked very, very impressive. And I think, despite his age, that the plan will be again to try and get him in with the 23s as much as possible, if they can, um, in, in the year that's coming up. They're going to do Cody Dramey, um right back from Fulham, 18-year-old um, England Youth International. You'll have seen that written about quite a lot. That is in the process of getting done as we speak, um, and that should should happen. And likewise, there's a goalkeeper from Ajax that they're, they're very keen on and want to bring him in from Holland. Um, Danny van der Heuvel, who is only 17 and inexperienced and very much one for the future, as we always say. But they, you know, they, they have a, um, a head of youth recruitment, Craig Dean, who, who came from Oxford United a couple of years ago. And, and it does seem like he's been waiting for the starting gun of promotion to get himself out into the market to do some academy deals. And, and they really are, you know, without in, investing hideous amounts of cash, you know, they're, they're spending on these and, and they are getting them done and, and they do want to try and create this really, really strong group of kids coming through, not with the expectation of every single one being good enough, but I think with the intention of some of the players that you pick up for six-figure sum, a five-figure sum, whatever else, um, turning into actually top-quality first-team players who who are worth an awful lot of money. And you'll have seen as well, there's a, a new contract for um, Matthias Bogutz, who I think will, will probably go on loan at some point now. Um, Jamie Shackleton is in the process of agreeing new terms, and that may well be announced um, later this evening. I think that'll probably be done by the time people listen to this podcast. And then you've got others like Robbie Gotts, who, again, will, will be tied to new terms and I think will find a loan club. Um, he's got a, a fair amount of interest in him. Huddersfield, naturally, who've, who've got Carlos Corbin um, as head coach now, Akeen, um, but also Hull and, and I think Blackpool as well would like to take him. So, it's, we'll, and we'll, we'll get on to talking about the first team shortly, but it's very, very busy at academy level. And I think it's, it's good to see, actually, that having been hyped up to Category 1 status under P and, and having taken that leap and, and kind of positioned themselves as an elite academy, which which in terms of development they already were, but now with the, the sign above the door, I, I think it is really encouraging to see that actually they're putting the money where their mouth is and, and, and they are wanting to, to invest at that level as well as first team level. On first team level and putting money where mouth is, let's get on to the juicy bits, the bits that everyone's getting excited about at the minute, because there's nothing that quite you know, gets everybody going quite like the first team signings, particularly when we're talking about figures that will break the club transfer records. And Ben White is stealing a lot of the headlines at the minute. So a couple of questions around this. I guess it's it's how high do you think we'll go? 
is there anything in it and is it a case of whatever it takes? Well, I think with White, it was an inevitability that, that if they did sign him and if they do sign him, it, it will break their transfer record. That's been £80 million Rio Ferdinand for 20 years now and, and has never really been threatened up until the point where they did the deal for Costa from Wolves, which fell a little way short, and then Augustine from Leipzig, which clearly isn't going to happen in the way that it should have happened uh, if it happens at all, and would potentially have strayed over the £18 million mark. But but Ben White will definitely go for more than that if Brighton choose to sell him. There were reports last weekend which were accurate about two bids being knocked back from Leeds. One upfront offer of about £18 million, the, the second upfront offer of about £22 million, and um, from what I understand, both deals including add-ons on top of those figures. So, you know, England debut, Premier League appearances, all, all the usual sort of stuff that would, would have paid more cash. Brighton don't want to know at the moment and are in the mo- in the process of trying to agree a new deal with Ben White. And I mean, if, if he was to sign a new contract down there, then it, it will, I think, be game over in terms of Leeds trying to sign him. I, I don't. I think that would, would kill it stone dead at that point. But he has rejected offers from them so far. They haven't been able to. They haven't been able to meet him um, in, in terms of his demands or, or what he's looking for. And and I still wonder deep down whether or not he, he sees himself as a Brighton player going forward from here, or whether he thinks actually he might be better served playing elsewhere and and potentially better served playing at Leeds, where he's so is so ingrained under under Bielsa. I mean. The, the reason why I think Leeds would go big on him, and, and I do think they'll be tempted to push themselves up from, from 22 million, if, if White isn't taking a new deal down there and if Brighton can't get that done and they cannot get him to commit, uh, and they feel like they, or, or at least the, the signals are there that, that White might be wanting to go, I think Leeds will push this up closer towards the, the 30 million pound mark. So there was some talk earlier today that, that they'd bid 30 million pounds, but I'm told that, that that isn't right, that it is still at 22 at the moment, and that White is discussing terms with Brighton, and you know, trying to see whether or not an extension can be done down there. But if they, I think, if they they do sense that White wants to come, they'll they'll definitely have another go at him. It's just that there's going to have to be a line drawn somewhere, um, and they'll not persevere with this indefinitely. They they won't pay an endless amount of cash for them. There will have to be an upper ceiling in terms of what they bid. So this is a big one for them. You know, they're they're desperate to get him. They do want to get him. Bielsa would love to have him permanently. Um, If they can do it, as we've said before, then they most certainly will. But I I wouldn't like to try and call this one at the moment because there's a lot of factors and a lot of parties involved. Is there a likely backup target then, do you think? Absolutely. At the the start of the window, they had White on the list as a key player, key target, um, someone they, they, they really wanted to get. But they know that if they can't, that they will have to move pretty quickly and that they will have to find another centre-back. I mean, Bielsa's making it easy for them in the sense that he only seems to want one. Despite the injury to Berardi, he, he seems to feel that he has enough cover um, at right-back and left-back and because of that, he can move Luke Ayling into the centre of defence if he needs to with, with Liam Cooper. Um, so they will have fallbacks and they always have fallbacks. I mean, the the thing I, when I went to speak to Otter about a year ago now, he was um, explaining to me uh, how they, through the season, and I don't know if they still do this, but I imagine they will do. Through the season, he and the scouting department keep a kind of best 11 in which they add transfer targets, players they could sign to it, and they try to constantly strengthen the team on paper with you know players who they, they would like to bring in, players who they think they could bring in, players who would who would improve the team if, if they could get them. Um, so they, they will have alternatives to White, but I don't think they'll have alternative, alternatives to White that they'd be as delighted to sign if, if they could get him and, and they will, they'll keep going for him for as long as it's prudent to do so. And whilst Ben White is stealing all the headlines, we do have other positions across the park that we need to fill and other rumoured transfer targets. Ben Rama is one that we've spoken about 
in previous weeks at, at Brentford. I mean, are we serious about this one and, and how likely do we think that is, particularly with the, the reported interest from Chelsea? Serious about him and have spoken about him and have made contact about him. But again, he, he does have options and that is a that is a difficult one to call. I, I think they've positioned themselves where a lot of the players they're going for are going to be wanted by other clubs or are already with clubs who want to keep them as with, with Ben White. And they're, they're kind of being ambitious in the sense that they're not going for easy options. I don't see Ben Rama as being 100% straightforward and it doesn't feel to me at this stage anyway that there's been any significant progress with that and and as ever that there are fallbacks yeah one who, who's been mentioned and, and is definitely of of interest is um Michi Bashuai down at Chelsea um who Bielsa knows from Marseille was a, a youngster at Marseille when Bielsa was was manager there so knows a lot about his game ins and outs of it uh, wouldn't be somebody who would have to adapt massively I don't think to to what Bielsa does and you know despite the fact that it has never really happened for him at Chelsea is, is it a, a good and, and prime age at, at 26 I, I was saying in a piece that I wrote it's like a lot of plates spinning at the moment and, and it does tend to be like this in, in transfer windows particularly with Leeds you, you do tend to find that they've got a lot on the go and, and it's waiting for everything to fall into place. But it's starting to tick now towards that period where, where things need to happen. And I think the the disadvantage for Leeds in this window, uh, which obviously runs on into October, is that they aren't really in a position at the moment to start the season in, in particularly great strength. You know, they, they need a centre-back to go with Liam Cooper. They need something else up front with, with Bamford. It's not that they don't have the spine or the core of a team, because they definitely do, and it's a team that's that's just been promoted. But they are short of time to get all this done before the, the games kick off. And, and whereas a lot of other established teams in the Premier League and established squads will have managers who want to make additions and want to make signings, they might not feel the same level of urgency that Bielsa and Leeds will, will be feeling. And I think I think Leeds will definitely want to see progress in the next week or two weeks. They'll, they'll want to see things getting over the line now. Any other targets that you think we should know about or anything we've heard on the Jungle Drums? No, it's quiet otherwise at the moment. And you tend to find when it is quiet like this, it, it means that there isn't an awful lot moving in the background. There'll be a lot going on in, in terms of inquiries and, and discussions and phone calls. Um, but as, as I was saying about, you know, sponsorship and, and kit pitches and everything else, this stuff does tend to leak when it gets close. You know, these, these stories do tend to come out and, and you'll certainly get wind of the fact, as you did with Gilhart, you know, once it started to get to the point where Leeds were getting that done, it... It was kind of open knowledge and, and everybody knew what was going on. Um, and it'll have been a busy couple of weeks without much, you know, much crossing the line, without too much progress on, on any fronts. But it is now middle of August, season is starting middle of September, but we're going to have to see one or two coming in. What's the overall budget looking like for this? Because they've been at pains to stress they want to ape Sheffield United rather than Aston Villa. But the sort of players that we seem to be looking at are all in this, comfortably in this kind of 15, 20, 25 million pound bracket. I mean, We've seen Jonathan David, who's now uh, confirmed as having gone to Lille. Were we ever seriously looking at him? And how much do you think we are actually going to spend this summer? You were asking in in the last last podcast, you know, the links to Argentina, whether any of them were credible or, or whether it was um, whether it was just paper talk. And I was saying, and, and this I think applies to to David, that there are a lot of players that they do look at and they do ask about because they want to know what the situation is and they want to make sure that if they decide to go for them, then they're in in a good position to do so, but who ultimately they don't don't go after or, or they decide they don't want. And and technically there is still a link there. And technically you could say that yeah they, they were interested, but actually it was it was never going to go anywhere. I think they realised that in order to get the really key additions to the squad, they're gonna have to pay some 
sizable fees. There does seem to be a sense at Leeds that they can get Ben Rama for perhaps a pretty reasonable fee of about 12 to 15 and um, rather than the big whack that that you would would expect which was a surprise to me but that's you know that's certainly what what they were hoping um, now clearly that's going to be influenced by who else is involved and and what else is what else is happening around him but when it comes to somebody like white there would have been a even though they went in with 80 million as a as a first bid they would have known that they would have to go beyond 20 for him it it, it, it was common sense to say that brighton were not going to take the first offer and brighton were not going to deal um, for a fee that, you know, for example, was lower than, than somebody like Adam Webster, who'd, who they'd signed themselves from, from Bristol City for around about 20, um, 20 plus. You know, White, I think, has been a, a level above Webster in terms of the championship and has been one of the stars of the, the championship season. So naturally, costs a lot of money. And I think the priority for Leeds will be to make sure that next season doesn't get difficult and next season doesn't carry any risk of them going down because... There are clubs in England who can yo-yo and there are clubs who yo-yo quite successfully, but I just don't see Leeds as that sort of team. I just don't see Leeds United as, as that sort of club who can bounce from one division to the next. And I think having been outside the Premier League for 16 years, this is the point at which they're going to have to build and consolidate and they're going to have to make sure that four or five years down the line, they're really, really firmly established in the Premier League rather than either having come back down and gone back up or having floated in and flirted with relegation for a while. Because as you find out with, you know, team like Bournemouth who for a lot of years were good and, and competitive and, and seemed you know, to, to have the wit to keep themselves well clear of the bottom three it can suck you in eventually Ben Rama that seems awfully cheap because the figures online would suggest twice that 12 million figure that you just uh, dropped in there Phil that comes as a bit of a surprise to me Absolutely and it did to me and I, I don't know whether that would, would stand up um, as and when it, it got to that point of, of negotiation because he has all the stats and all the numbers that would put him in the £20 million bracket and it just seems to be convention now that anybody who shines in the championship falls into that area of, of fee. You know, I, I don't see too much reason why Ben Rama would be significantly cheaper than Ben White, for example. You know, both of them would make the, the um, championship team of the year without any question. Both of them, I think, would be in the running um, quite rightly for the Championship's Player of the Year award. It, it, they've both been at, at that sort of level. And I think whoever gets Ben Rama is, is going to get a, a very good and very skillful player with, with potential to get better. But again, I, when I look at him, I can see very easily why it is that Bielsa likes him, why Bielsa would think that he could do good things with him, irrespective of the playoff final where he didn't play well. But quite honestly, I don't think Brentford from, from front to back played well in that game. Is there any truth in the interest in Harry Wilson, our new sponsors tweeted about it a few days before becoming our sponsors. Um, it seems like it would be a fairly logical step for us, but I don't know, I don't know if there's any truth in it. Yeah, I'm absolutely interested. Leeds always say to me that any time Arthur does a list of potential targets or players that he likes, Wilson is is always on it. Um, the a big fan of his. I think they, they would have been keen previously had it had it been possible but obviously Liverpool latterly did the loan down to Bournemouth and again he's he's going to be someone who if Liverpool want to, to say I can't, can't see really much purpose in Liverpool loaning him out for a season again you would think that they would either keep him or they would they would try to, to take the money for him um, and he is is not going to be cheap but yeah no the, the talk of interest in him is is absolutely credible whether or not it's one that Leeds really expect to happen this summer or, or really intend to do I'm, I'm not so sure but I think if he became available in circumstances that, that let Leeds get involved then I suspect that they would When it gets warm out there is nothing better than an ice cold beer and thanks to our good pals at beer52.com you can try eight specially selected craft beers sourced from around the world cover the postage of 4.95 at beer52.com forward slash fill 
and you're all set. And even better, as a listener to this show, you'll get two extra free beers, so a total of 10 free beers. These beers are handpicked as Beer 52 travel the world to find the tastiest beers from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. You can leave any time, the power is all in your hands, and Beer 52 deliver your beers straight to your front door. You don't even need to leave the house. In your case, you will get a beer-friendly snack included, along with the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains all about the beers that you're drinking in that case. Just go to beer52.com forward slash Phil to get your free case, and listeners to The Phil Hay Show get two extra free beers. Beer52.com forward slash Phil. One of the things that we see from entering into the Premier League is how clubs grow on the, the world stage. It leads a very special case, particularly where Bielsa's concerned. And you've done a bit on Bielsa and the links back to Argentina and how Leeds have grown in prominence over there in South America, Phil. Yeah, the, there were two things that interested me in the final week when Leeds got promoted, aside from the promotion itself, obviously. Um, one was the fact that in Argentina... They've taken to ESPN Argentina, have taken to televising Leeds United games since Bielsa went over there. And, and that has been a, a, a change of attitude because prior to that, it got virtually no coverage and, and there was no interest with major broadcasters in the, the championship rights at all. And, but what I thought was really telling was the fact that in, in that week, ESPN broadcast the game between Huddersfield and West Brom um, at the John Smiths. A game which, if you speak to people who work in, in the media over in Argentina, they, they say even now, you know, regardless of the Bielsa influence, if, if that was a, a kind of dead rubber championship game or if there was no significance from Leeds' point of view in, in that match, they would just never televise. They just they would, would not even consider making space in the schedule for it. But that was shown live in Argentina because they'd realised that that might be the point at which Leeds finally went up and, and at which promotion was confirmed. And then the following day, a newspaper, daily newspaper in Rosario, El Cuidadano, published on its front page a, a huge picture of fans celebrating outside Ellen Road, a, a fan with a flag saying Viva Bielsa, and basically gave the entire front page splash to the fact that Leeds had been promoted. Um, the headline was um, Sureno Unido, which was his United Kingdom. And they wrote about what they called the local virus. So a bit of a, a play on the coronavirus, but essentially Bielsa's Football and his tactics and, and the, the affection that people have for him in infecting another city and, and another country. And it just all painted the picture of this place 5,000, 7,000 miles away that had become infatuated and, and fascinated by what was going on at Ellen Road. So the, the reason that I wrote the piece was I wanted to find out a bit more about whether or not Leeds United really had taken hold over there and, and whether or not the, the growth and interest was something that, that was going to last. And also to find out how much of an effect Bielsa has had since he came here in, in 2018, because to speak to people over there, Leeds had basically no profile two years ago. It wasn't that people didn't know who they were and, and it wasn't that people didn't know anything about their history, but there was nothing really in, in the way of a, a core lead support in Argentina at all. And, and I do get the sense that, that that is changing quite drastically now. I do wonder what the folks in Argentina made of Huddersfield when that was on the TV. Maybe they set up some sort of charity telethon off the back of seeing it, something like that. What do you think? <laughs> well, I spoke to um, uh, Jose Odiseo, uh, Chino, they call him over there. He's a writer um, for El Cuidadano. And I was I was sort of asking him about the Huddersfield game and um, I was saying to him, it must have been odd, slightly bizarre, to be sitting watching this without Leeds and Bielsa being involved. And, and potentially with a lot of people in Argentina who might have known that, that Leeds were on the brink of promotion, but possibly wouldn't have 
fully understood or, or known the context of what needed to happen on, on that day. You know, the, the fact that if West Brom dropped any points, Leeds were up. If West Brom, West Brom won, it was going to go to the following day um, when, when Brentford played away at Stoke. But he talked about um, people in Rosario celebrating Huddersfield's second goal like it was, as he put it, one of their own. I mean, it's, it's important to say that not everybody in Rosario likes Bielsa. There are two clubs there. There's Rosario Central and there's Newell's Old Boys. And clearly he's an icon and a, a legend at, at Newell's, but naturally not thought of in the same way at Rosario Central at all. And, and actually, as you wander through Argentina, which, which I kind of did metaphorically, you find that there are still cynics and, and critics of his out there who will, I think, never be convinced by anything that he does. Um, I mean, I, I spoke to people who said... You know, much as they appreciated what he'd done at Leeds and, and admired what he'd done at Leeds, it, it, they'd heard it said um, in media circles that the championship was a second-rate competition, a second-rate title. That it, you know, it it didn't count in terms of you know portraying Bielsa as an elite coach. And I think in the minds of some over there, certainly doesn't count in terms of kind of smoothing over the the bad blood that was there after the two thousand and two World Cup when Argentina went with such big, big expectations and, and ultimately delivered um nothing at all. Um there were some wounds opened then which have, have never fully healed and, and still seem to exist. But I I do think that a lot of people over there are still encapsulated by him and because of that have become, you know, really, really keenly interested in, in what's happening. At Leeds. And I think, as I said earlier, having gone from a point where they had no significant fan base at all over there, I, I now think it's it's become a little pocket for Leeds. And, and as one of the, the authors I spoke to, Andrea D'Amelio, she's written a book about about Bielsa um, called Los Locos del Loco. She said it's been like a bit of a, a little revolution over here. You've gone from no sort of Leeds United influence at all to suddenly a, a very big Leeds United influence where, you know, as, as another journalist said, he he looks for illegal streams when he has to, when ESPN don't televise, because they become that that interest in, it, in the games, that they, they want to see them regardless of whether they're on or not. I think it goes both ways as well. I've seen a huge amount of interest amongst Leeds fans in Newell's Old Boys, and they're a team that I can honestly say I, I never heard anyone talk about until Bielsa, and now all of a sudden I think they're, if not everyone's second team, they're a team that a lot of Leeds fans now have a bit of an interest in. Yeah, the clubs are almost twins. You you get supporters who um, go from Leeds to Newells and you have supporters in Newells who will help to accommodate them and get them to games when they're over there. And you have the same in reverse, supporters from Newells who are coming over to Leeds and, and are being helped by various people for the period when they're in England. And, and I got in touch with um, Juan Matos, who's, who's one of the, the guys in the communications department at Newells Old Boys, and, and was asking him, you know, do you think this is a... a rather tenuous link that will kind of die a death uh, over time and, and will fade away? Or, or do you think it's going to last? And he said, no, I, I genuinely think it will last. He said, I'm, I'm getting used to seeing, you know, the odd lead shirt on the terraces at Newell's. And there was a, a letter sent by Newell's to the board at Leeds after the promotion, congratulating them and, and Bielsa as well. And they, they work very hard to cultivate their relationship with Bielsa. They they cannot speak highly enough of him. They, they cannot think any more highly of him than they do. And, you know, people will know the story of him funding the the new training facility um, a couple of years ago at, at, for Newell's, um, the cost of about $2 million, you know, his own money that was used to, to, to pay for that. The stadium is named after him. It's a, it's, a, it's a permanent relationship, which will, permanent love really, which will always always last. And that has helped to, to generate the interest in Rosario. But I still found it intriguing that, a, a, you know, a local newspaper in that city with the front page clear 
um, on the Saturday after Leeds had been promoted would would choose to write about okay you know this Argentinian coach who who is in England doing great things but essentially to to devote the front page and to write about a, an English club in the second division and in a division which nobody in Argentina has taken any interest in at all until two years ago that that would make the the front page splash and I, I think it does show quite clearly the impact that he has had. I think it's one of those things that's forgotten actually that Bielsa is quite a Marmite figure. For many, I mean, like you hear the stories of him being lionized in Argentina, as you just mentioned there, Phil, but there are an equal number of people who would never hear a good word said about him. But on the plus side of this, you look at like the the Chilean people, they call them like the widows of Bielsa, don't they? Because he's touched them in such a way that, um, you know, they're never going to forget his legacy in Chile because he took them to such heights compared to where they've been previously. And I think that's what his legacy is going to be like at Leeds. He's, he's, a lot more than I ever thought he would be. But as soon as I realised what he was, one of the things I've truly loved actually is the links back to, to Newell's old boys and the effect that it's had on on Argentina in terms of consuming Leeds United. Leeds, I think, will be Newell's mark too. I, I think it's it's almost been the same. The, the relationship has developed in the same way at Leeds as, as it did at Newell's. And, and he is very well thought of at Marseille and, and at Bilbao, but... He, he didn't win anything at either club and, and obviously the way it ended at, at both was not great and it, it did I, I don't think it dampened things particularly I think he, he went with his reputation intact but it, it wasn't the, the same outpouring of, of affection and gratitude that you've had in Leeds I mean the all the people I spoke to were very positive about Bielsa but they were all equally at pains to say you mustn't make the mistake of thinking that everybody in Argentina is happy about this. You know, you mustn't make the mistake of thinking that people in Argentina are en masse absolutely delighted for Bielsa. There are a lot of people who who are, and as um, Andrea D'Amelio said to me, you know, it, it feels like the achievement or the thing that, that his, his club career really deserved. But yeah, no, they, they are. There are still cynical quarters over there, particularly in, in the media. And, you know, Jose Odicio said I, that he still feels that in terms of, love for Bielsa, particularly in the media, but I think he was talking generally. He said it's probably more unanimous and, and potentially stronger in Chile and Leeds and in Marseille than it is in Argentina. Because you're right, you do have you do have this divide between people who think he's a genius um, and people who I don't think it'd be fair to say that they think he's a fraud, but I, I think they they feel like his reputation is overblown and, and actually he's nothing like the, the talented coach that people make him out to be. And and it's. It's kind of odd when you you hear that perspective because you look and see what he's done at Leeds and you can't see him as anything other than an exceptionally talented coach. You, you look at him as a coach with talent on a level like nothing. I think we many of us have seen it at Leeds before. Certainly not me in the, in the past sixteen years. And 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 he is exceptional. But yeah, there's a there's a reputational issue in Argentina which is never ever going to be going to be cured. And I, and you know even people over there, the people you speak to, say I, they they don't know what it would take to kind of rehabilitate Bielsa to the point where absolutely everybody in Argentina loved him. It'll be really interesting to chart the profile of Leeds in South America in the Premier League this coming season, because if Bielsa makes even a moderate success of it and has Leeds stable somewhere around mid-table, it's going to be seen as a, a huge achievement. And with the global reach of the Premier League, you can only expect this is going to get bigger and bigger. Yeah, what I think is really impressive about the way that, that the world has spread in Argentina is the fact that Bielsa has done this while Leeds have been in the Championship, you know, in, in a, a more obscure division that doesn't have the, the global TV rights that the Premier League has and, and doesn't have the, the same type of reach. Um, but the, there are 
big markets now for them to to tap into. There, there is already big fan base in, in Ireland and, and in Scandinavia and the, the supporters club of, of branches all over the world. Last time I, I spoke to them, I'm pretty sure they were just in the process of launching one in Japan and um, other, other far-flung places. But this you know, Premier League exposure is what can really open up the, the market in the Far East and also, I think, significantly in the United States, which obviously becoming more and more keen on, on football or soccer as, as we go. This all comes back, I think, to... The discussion we've had so many times over the years about Leeds trying to maximise and fulfil the the potential, and and you just cannot do that when you're outside of the Premier League because you can't reach enough people, and you cannot inspire that interest in people naturally. It's different when you have somebody like Bielsa. I think it, it's been quite a phenomenon, really, the way in which at this lower level he's been able to make you know to create headlines around the world, but also to make people really sit up and, and take interest in, in what's going on at Ellen Road. But that a little bit like the sponsorship deals, that will just multiply exponentially as, as leads get better as they hopefully will and and as they establish themselves in the Premier League. I think maybe one thing that people don't realise in the way that we traditionally consume football in the UK is the way that the Premier League is viewed in other countries. I mean my pal Neil who lives in the Middle East he says the Premier League over there, it's almost sold as being like a soap opera in terms of they hype up the sackings, the fallouts, the transfers, that sort of stuff. It's elevated to new dramatic levels. And that's part of the product. And you look around the, the management roster in the Premier League and Bielsa's really going to add to that. He's going to add such a story to it for the Premier League to sell around the world. He is. And when you think about it, uh a very basic level. As you distribute the rights around the world, you're asking people to take an interest and potentially to start siding with clubs that they either know nothing about or have, have zero connection to at all. It's, it's no different to the NFL trying to encourage people in the UK to pick a franchise and to back a franchise, even though you, you have no reason to pick any franchise in particular. And, you know, it, it is almost boiling down to who has the best players or who has the, the best kit or sort of name that, that sucks you in and same could apply to the NBA or, or whatever else. You, you're trying to inspire that bit of fascination and, and, and yeah, that bit of showbiz that makes people want to watch it and, and stick with it. Uh, and, yeah, this, this is it for the Premier League. They, they've got this season. They have Bielsa against Guardiola. They have Bielsa against Klopp. They have Mourinho in there as well. We're going to, at some stage, um, you would think, have Bielsa against Lampard, which will be interesting for for its own reasons. And it is just that little bit of, of extra theatre. I, I don't think Bielsa would ever want to be seen as theatre. You know, I don't think he'd ever want to be thought of in that way. But he does appreciate that the game's about entertainment. And, and he is he is very big on the fact that if you want people to pay for this, if you want them to pay for TV rights, if you want them to pay for tickets in the ground, then you have to entertain them and, and you have to make them happy. So it's a quality addition for the division, both the club and the head coach. It's, um, it's exactly what they would have wanted. From a fan's perspective, Michael, Bielsa surely has cemented his legacy at Leeds forevermore. I think the only thing that could ruin it is losing the hour opening 10 games or something and going down and then there would always be that that slight feeling of it was all for nothing. But I don't I don't really see that as being the case. And from a, from a personal point of view, I've booked flights to Bilbao for next summer, uh, which I've not yet broken to my wife. Why? I just said it would be a nice place to go and she's agreed. So we're going to do that next year and I'm going to have my own little pilgrimage to uh, to one of his the shrines of Marcello, but hopefully we can uh, get to Rosario at some point as well. If I said to you the words number 44, everybody instantly has one man who springs to mind. Ross McCormack, number 44. I cannot off the top of my head remember now why it was that he wore 44. 
or how that came to to take hold in a period where people were probably more resistant to ridiculous squad numbers than they are now. I think everybody's accepted these days that if it runs up to 99, it just does and, and you just get on with it. But he, uh, I, I don't think many people would disagree that he's probably one of the most natural finishers, goal scorers Leeds have had past 10 years, potentially since they, they were relegated from the Premier League. And, and an interesting story from start to finish, given that it, it does feel to a certain extent that at 33 he is reaching the end of the line now. He's a free agent as we speak. He's been released uh, from Aston Villa. You would suspect that him having the, the track record for scoring goals that he does, that there will be offers and, and he will be able to find another club. Um, but he's no longer the, the big sought-after asset that he was when he was at Leeds in a game when he went to Fulham and, and Villa paid £12 million for him. And, and when you think back to the, the 2013-14 season where he scored 29 goals and he, he almost turned Leeds into a one-man team and, and was the difference between staying in the Championship and, and getting relegated, I certainly felt. It's strange and, and quite sad, actually, that it's gone from that point to this stage now where you, you're really not sure where he's going to roll up next. Should add that we are doing this in part three because you reopened the polls this week on your on your Twitter account and we had three options, which were uh, McCormack's Life and Times, which won it with nearly half the vote, Fabian Delft's breakthrough, which came third with just over 18%, and Morrison for Becchio with a third of the vote. Nearly 10,000 people voting. So thank you if you did vote on Phil's Twitter account. Keep an eye on that next week for the, for the part three poll. Just going back to what you said there, in my mind, this might be entirely fictional, Phil, but I suspect he ended up with 44 because he wanted eight and eight wasn't available. So he went for four and four. I don't know if I've um, imagined that. I suspect so. There, there was some talk about it being tribute to um, his grandmother from when he was at, at Rangers, but I'd, I'd never heard or, or found out the, the full story behind that. I mean, I, I knew of him uh, as a youngster from, from following Scottish football up at Rangers. He was kind of on the fringes up there and was talked about for a while um, as, as somebody who might come through and, and might have a, a lot of promise and, and a lot of potential. At the point where Leeds signed him in 2010, he, he came in from Cardiff and for a, a pretty modest fee. At the time, we were told it was around about £300,000. And given that the club sold him to Fulham four years later for, what, almost £11 million, quid, it gives you some indication of, of how undervalued he was in that deal and, and what a bargain Leeds got for him. But he was he was in a strange position at that point because there'd been problems down at Cardiff. He'd been accused of handing in a transfer request, but had denied handing in a transfer request. There'd been arguments over his contract. All wasn't quite well. There'd been a point at which he'd had a drink driving ban, he'd crashed his car and and he'd left it, but it had his personalised number plate on it and so on. And it, it felt like a case of this guy who did have a lot of promise and, and could be a very, very good striker who slightly lost his way in the sense that his career didn't have the direction that it, it really needed at that end. And Leeds went in for him after they got promoted from League One and that was done um, while the season was going on, but it, it was just you know right before the end of the, the transfer window. And at the time, I think everybody thought that, that it was a decent deal for Leeds. I think they thought that it was a, a good player to go for. It was someone who, who would score goals. But I don't think initially any of us necessarily saw him becoming this big talisman that he was for the season, um, 2013-14, or necessarily anticipated what a good finisher he was going to be when, you know, when the mood took him. I mean, it, it, there were points in that season where he seemed to score anything from anywhere. I still remember that game down at Charlton where he scored four times. And that's the, I think the only time I've ever given anybody 10 out of 10 in, in the evening post ratings. I mean, and prior to him, 
I think you had to go all the way back to Rio, Fer- Rio Ferdinand against Deportivo um, or Nigel Martin against Roma for players who who had got that rating. But he, he was so good that day and his finishing was was so off the scale that you, you couldn't really give him anything else. Can I just ask you, Phil, given that you're so frugal with the um, the marks out of 10 that you, that you did there for the YEP, presumably, you know, when your daughters show you a nice picture they've done at school or whatever, you, you'll tell them it's terrible, six out of 10 at best, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, they're they're very used to threes and fours, <laughs> that sort of thing. And keeping keeping the spirit of the evening post alive. Yeah, I I did have a reputation for being rather stingy, although it was always a difficult balance because you'd have situations like Sammy Sayers scoring a hat trick against Port Vale in the League Cup, and people saying to you, "Well, that has to be a ten out of 10. and you would say to them, "Yeah, but the problem is if if Sayers then scores three scores a hat trick in the game that seals promotion to the Premier League." You haven't really got anywhere to go, have you? So it's all got to be in proportion. But yes, I, I accept that the, the general view was that I might have been um, a little bit harsh with a lot of my ratings from time to time. From a fan's point of view, he's kind of, he's got a mixed legacy as Ross McCormack, I think, Michael, do you agree? And he, he did well. We extracted great value out of him in terms of the transfers in and, and out, as Phil just mentioned there. But he was great for us for a bit. But I don't know, something's never quite sat 100% right about him. I mean, for me, I think I, I mainly have good memories of him. He was he was by far our best player at a time when we didn't really have anyone else and he, he pulled us out of a lot of tough situations. And I think ultimately he got a reputation for being Ross McContract and all that and wanting seeming to want more money and want to move. But at the time, he was arguably the best player in the championship playing in what, without him, would have been one of the worst teams in the championship. Being paid, I imagine, not particularly brilliant salary. So... I can kind of see why he would have wanted away from us. And we had some good moments of him yelling at, well, yelling at Warnock, essentially, when he came off the bench to score. So I think there's some great moments in there. It's just, I think what he's shown since he's left us is that maybe his his head isn't quite right. And that some of those early things, the early problems he had with the drink driving, and I guess when he was with us, there was the fly tipping thing as well, which was a sort of vaguely amusing, but not ideal when, you've, uh, when you were kind of a star footballer. Maybe, I don't know, he's one of these players that I... Now I see him, I sort of worry about him in a strange way. Like, Because I, I feel like if he, he's still young enough that he should be a good player and his game was never really about pace anyway. So the fact that he has dropped off so drastically does make me a little bit concerned for him. I don't know what, what you think about that, Phil. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And it's not even like it's it's dropped off drastically in the past few months. You know, I, I think 13 league starts for Villa in total in the period when he was there. And that was on the back of... £12 million paid for him and not a secret about the issue with the Garden Gate and Steve Bruce, you know, all, all the, the, the kind of oddities that have that have developed. And I think I think you're right. You know, he, he has it does seem to, as a footballer, completely lost his way and has gone from a striker who's certainly in the Championship, but also kind of lower-end Premier League teams would have seen something in and, and would have wanted to take to, to somebody who I'll watch with great interest to see if he finds a club this summer, who takes him? I mean, perhaps the fact that the market is how it is will help him, will help to increase the, the number of, of clubs who, who want to have a go. But, you know, he, he will have been on a very, very high wage at, at Villa. And I think, all in all, the, the last three years will not have been good for him as a player. You know, they won't have been good for his sharpness or his fitness or, or anything else. And I don't know where he is and, and what he's up to at the moment. But it's a kind of strange end to what should have been a, a steady and, and very tidy career. He was up and down and, and he, he 
you mentioned the the McContract thing. He he was somebody who looked after himself, Ross. I mean, the, the, that was never in question. And I think the best example of that would be the the Mad Friday night when he asked to see Chilino. He, he asked to go because he he just felt the whole thing was a shambles. He was on Sky Sports News a couple of times as McDermott was being sacked. Cardiff City were keen to resign him. There there were options, and Chilino didn't deal at that point, but but did six months later when, when Fulham came in and, and it seemed to make a, a whole lot more sense. But you'll remember in his first year, despite the fact that he, he had this good reputation and was a finisher and, and everything else, he, he didn't play much under um, Grayson and, and he didn't score at all until the last couple of weeks of the season when um, the playoffs had already gone. You know, he scored against Burnley, he scored against QPR, but it was clear by that point that Leeds weren't going to catch Forrest anyway. And I interviewed him after a reserve game towards the end of the season, probably April time, and and said, you know, what? what's your kind of feeling um, about how this has gone? Because it should have been a good move for you, this, but it, it, it's been a, a very, very quiet year. And he said quite openly, he said, well, I'd have been better off staying at Cardiff. He said, I, I, you know, the way it's gone this season, I should just have stayed at Cardiff because I've hardly played, I've, I've hardly been involved, you know, I've, I've, I've hardly made a, a scratch, hardly made a dent on the club. And, you know, the, the, the club were aware of the comments, but I think took them with quite good grace. People on the inside were saying to me, look, you can understand why he's frustrated, but actually... He is going to get a chance next year. You know, he is going to play more regularly. He will be more involved. And and he was under Grayson and then latterly Warnock in that year. Um, he scored 18 goals and, and suddenly started to look a bit like a 20-goal a striker, the sort of player Leeds were, were hoping for. You two can tell me what you thought about this, but one of the things that, that I could never quite get my head around with McCormack was that he and Becchio never seemed to particularly gel. Well, and I don't mean on a personal level. I don't know whether they got on um, on a personal level at all. Um, I, I don't know what the, the background was there and, and they may well have been fine. But I never felt that when the two of them played, it worked especially well. I, I always felt that McCormack seemed to peak when Becchio wasn't in the team and likewise Becchio seemed to be better when, when he was kind of the main man up front. And, and it was almost after Becchio went um, in the, the transfer window of 2013 and, and then Warnock after him that, that McCormack really seemed to thrive and, and really seemed to come of age. I'd go along with that. I think he McCormack was at his best when he was the main man and his opportunity to play in what was actually quite a good lead side that, that first year up under Grayson when he wasn't particularly in the team. Maybe that was because he just couldn't slot into it anywhere and maybe someone like, because of his position, he could have replaced, I guess, someone like Snodgrass as well who was not necessarily playing up front. But he never... The, the games that you remember him for are the, the Charlton's, the Huddersfield's, the ones where it was almost... It felt a bit like him against the world and he had a point to prove. I feel like neither of them has ever kind of been a classic number nine. I think in modern parlance, you'd probably put McCormack as kind of a, a modern day number 10, wouldn't you? Someone that's playing behind the, the main striker. And I wonder if maybe because Becchio did quite a bit of that sort of link-up play too, that they were kind of occupying the same spaces maybe or something. I, I don't know enough about tactics or indeed football to kind of to qualify this, but maybe they just they didn't gel in the footballing sense. I must admit, it's not something I'd ever particularly thought of as them them two as a pairing before but yeah it is, it is true that none of my Becchio memories overlap with McCormack and vice versa I think out and out finishes have, have gone out of fashion a bit as well haven't they and I don't mean that people don't like goal scorers or don't like players who can score goals but in, in the Bielsa mould um, and, and he's a great example of, of coaching mind in this sense they want the centre forwards to do so much more than that, and you know it. It, it leads us back to the, the whole Bamford discussion and the XG discussion. It's it's what Bamford does away from finishing that that counts for Bielsa as opposed to the finishing. And you know McCormack had that on his side as as much as anybody. The the actual finishing touch and and the ability to to score goals. But I don't think of him and his link up play as being 
you know what you necessarily get from from modern day centre forwards. Well, modern day, I mean, he was modern day, but from centre forwards now, um, and and what what coaches would look for. Um, but I don't think that detracts from the fact that he was a, a very very good striker and very 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 good goal scorer. What I think um, the, the the fee I think is worth discussing. You know, the eleven million pounds to to Fulham because in the summer of two thousand and twelve, when Warnock was manager and was trying to rebuild the squad at Leeds with not a huge budget and, and not great support um, from behind him uh, and, and trying to find bits of cash here and there. So, for example, selling Adam Clayton, almost trading Andy Lonergan um, in order to get Paddy Kenny in through the door. He, he did think quite long and hard about whether or not to sell McCormack um, in that window. And I know that Huddersfield were keen and they were chatting about a, a figure potentially of about £500,000. That's what was, was being mentioned at the time. And even when we got round to, to August 2013, when McCormick got a new four-year contract um, from GFH, Middlesbrough were fancy taking him at that point. And, and you know, the, the fee being spoken about was more like £2 million, you know, which I think some people at least thought was actually quite good value. You know, some people thought that would be worth taking. But it, it was just at the stage where fees for championship players were starting to rocket and particularly for attacking players who tend to have premium prices on them. And, and it just went to show actually that from you know potentially a £2 million move to Borough um, in August 2013 to an £11 million move to Fulham eight, nine, ten months later, his, his value did, didn't half shoot up. And I think... In fairness to him, he was worth the money when Fulham signed him. I think he was because of the way he played in, in the 13-14 season. You'll have a better idea as to the answer to this question than I ever would, Phil. But within football, which let's face it, is a very forgiving business when you think about some of the problems that footballers have had across the years in terms of drinking, drink driving, going to jail and so on and so forth. Football's very forgiving in that respect. But can players earn a reputation for being damaged goods within football and, and find their star falls very, very quickly. Because when Jack Grealish, you know, had his incident over summer with the lockdown and the, and the, the car and all the rest of it, it came as no surprise to me to find out that he'd gone to Ross McCormack's for that um, COVID get-together. I wonder why that is. You can become damaged goods very easily and you've seen it with other players. I mean, Niall Ranger jumps out straight away as one on the basis that he was somebody who Hockaday was trying to bring in back in the, the short period when he was manager and Ranger was um, without a club. And I, I think if memory serves me right, was in the away end at Mansfield when Leeds played down there and it was Hockaday's intention to get him in. But Chilino looked at who, who he was and what he'd done and what his background was and, and just said, there's absolutely no way we're, we're signing this guy. And, you know, it's it, it doesn't even need to be scrapes either. It doesn't need to be personality issues or, or issues in public, you know, with, um, with legal matters to, to get you into that position where people start to doubt you. You've, you've seen it again with somebody like Ravel Morrison, massively talented player, hugely talented, who has just never stuck anywhere, not properly. Um, and who's got to the point where, you know, there the probably wouldn't be clubs claiming over each other to, to sign him, um, even if he was available and even if he was available at a, a very cheap price, because these days recruitment is about far more than that. And, and, you know, coaches and clubs do pay a lot of attention to how well players are going to fit into the dressing room. They do pay a lot of attention to what it might mean from a PR point of view if they bring certain people in. And they do try to avoid players who are potentially trouble. You know, it, it is it is a kind of key requirement when you're looking at potential signings and, and when you're analysing them. What do they do? What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? Statistically, what are they good at? But also at, in a personal, you know, at a personal level, 
what are they like? What are they like to deal with? How good are they at, at being part of a squad as opposed to, to playing as an individual? And yeah, I mean, you know, you, you could draw up a long list of players who have, who have faded because ultimately too many things have happened and clubs have started to lose faith in them. Clubs no longer believe that they're they're worth the money or or worth the hassle. And and I wonder whether that's the position McCormack's in now. It's it's a long, long time since I heard people in the game talking about him at all. You know, I don't mean positively or negatively. I mean it's a long time since I had anyone, agents or players or other managers speaking about McCormack or the possibility of signing McCormack or of somebody doing a deal for him because he just seems to have gone off off the radar. And I still, I can't honestly believe that at 33 and as a free agent, he isn't going to find somebody to play for, assuming that, that he, he wants to carry on and, and still thinks that he's got years left in his career. But I can't see it being at a particularly high level either. What was his problem with Warnock back then? Because was that just a personality thing? Because with the, the greatest one in the world, we had... Um, Steve Morrison and Luke Varney playing games up front together and McCormack on the bench and it, it did seem like it must be some non-football reason that he was being kept out for. Yeah, no, it, it, there, w- there was a personality clash there which won't really surprise anybody. I think though Warnock had frustrations with him too. He, he wasn't wholly delighted with McCormack's attitude and I think he felt like at the, the point where McCormack had, had a, another contract deal while, while Warnock was manager and I think Warnock felt like he'd got him good money and had got him a good wage and had done him a, a good deal. I don't know what the terms of it were so I, I can't say myself but no, the, the two of them did did not rub along and I think, you know, I, I've never seen a player in the flesh run and do what McCormack did to Warnock um, on that afternoon against Derby but I think McCormack like McCormack like everybody else in the ground pretty much realised that, that Warnock was on his last legs Some of the names you mentioned there Hockaday Niall Ranger it just reminded me it's just given me a little bit of wider context we've come a long way in the last five or six years haven't we? Yeah and you don't even need to stop there you know you, the terms of coming a long way I mean they, they always have come a long way because it's been 16 years you know I, I wrote before a couple of days before promotion was sealed about the Six, 15, 16 years of covering them and, and what's gone on and, and everything that makes you realise what a, a massive and, and important zenith this is with Bielsa and the squad. And, and it is like dealing with a completely different club. And I know there will always be things at clubs that frustrate us as journalists, that frustrate supporters and frustrate some people on the inside. But you'd have to say that the level of professionalism at Elland Road now is just incomparable to how it used to be. Well, you can read the article that Phil just mentioned there on The Athletic for free. At the minute, try it out for free. Enjoy the Argentina article that Phil's done too and all the brilliant stories about Leeds as the club gears up for the Premier League. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod and sign up for a 30-day free trial. That's theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pods. Phil, Michael, thank you. We'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hay Show. 